I'm here to talk to Benedict Nightingale about this quite extraordinary book, Great Moments in the Theatre, a book which I've read and enjoyed and learned from. And what it does is take us from the Oristar up to Jerusalem and cover well over 100 moments in theatre down the ages with Benedict's wit and erudition and style. We're old friends, old colleagues, and it's a great, great pleasure to be talking to you, Benedict. Nice. Um, so should we go straight in? Um, I know the book began, or had its origin, in a series of articles you did uh, for the Times newspaper. Um, I just wondered, how did you set about defining what makes a, quote, great moment? Did you drop a list, or what, how, did it, how did it happen? I think it was pretty arbitrary, really, on the whole. I, I mean, there are certain plays that if you're going to do great moments, you can't really leave out. Such um, as? Well, such as Waiting for Godot, you know, yeah. the, the greatest play of the century, according to a poll at this theatre. Such as, I suppose, Look Back in Anger, you know, and, and, and quite a few. Um, uh, going back in time to School for Scandal, going back to Phaedra, going back, although it was a, a little bit difficult to... Um, to, to know exactly when it happened, um, the, the, the first night of Hamlet. Uh, sorry, the, yeah, the first night of Hamlet. Uh, one thing that was rather fun, actually, and I haven't quite answered your question, but one thing that was rather fun, and perhaps almost made me do it, is that it's rather good fun to actually put the date of things on the top. You know, so the Jerusalem might be, the, the Jez Butterworth play, might be the 7th of June 2009. But if you come to the Oresteia, there's a certain <laughs> sort of glee in putting, um, because you can't get the exact day, uh, March uh, 428 BC. Um, uh, and I rather enjoyed that. That wasn't the reason I did it. No, no. And, and, and I, I also put in a, a, a lot of plays that, frankly, had given me pleasure or mattered to me in one way or another, or, or I thought, thought very highly of. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's rather a, a, a sort of mixture of things, a, a lot of things you'd expect to be there and are fairly obvious, and a lot of things perhaps you, perhaps you wouldn't. Uh, such, for instance, example off the top of my head, C.P. Taylor's Good, which I always thought was a very underrated play. Um, I knew C.P. Taylor, and I thought he was a wonderful man, uh, and he died terribly young, he had a heart attack, but he produced this play that was reasonably successful here and then flopped horribly in New York uh, and was about a man gradually becoming a German, gradually decent German, so it seemed, gradually becoming an apparatchik at Auschwitz. And uh, I, I thought it was wonderfully argued, and it's one of those plays that I'd like to see revived again and again. Having done the book and having made your choice, mm. and I understand your point, some things were self-selecting, because they were mm. so obvious and others were much more uh, your personal taste. Um, looking back, any plays now you regret not including? Yeah, plenty. I'm, I, mean, I, mean the, I mean, the problem was... I was supposed to do 100, and, and I sort of lost count, and I found I'd done 101. Uh, and, 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 and the publishers thought, well, 99 or 101 would look good. And then I realized, you, you, you know, I hadn't done Simon Gray, who, who I had a high regard for. I didn't know which play of his to choose. I've, funny enough, I'd chosen Quartermain's Terms, which is on yeah. the West End now. And I hadn't done Rattigan. Uh, and, and I'm rather interested in Rattigan. And he, he'd sent me all sorts of sort of rather sad sort of uh, whiskey... Um, smeared letters when he was sort of dying in the West Indies and uh, you, you know I think the D Deep Blue Sea is a great play um, so I thought how can I leave these out what have I got to cut you know and I didn't want to cut any of my babies you know I love them or, or most of them I mean some are very peculiar 
But, but um, uh, so we decided actually to cut out the 100 or 101 and call it great moments in the theater and hope no one counted. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and actually there are 103. <laughs> but coming back to my point, I mean, are there other plays that sort of oh, nag yeah, at you sorry, now? Oh, yeah, sorry, I didn't answer you. No, that's right, that mm. nag at you now, you know, that you wish you had included. Or that people come up to you and said, why didn't you include X, Y, Z? Uh, well, I mean, I come up to myself and say, why don't, why don't I, I? I think Porgy and Bess I should have done. I think, I, think I, I, I think I'm a little weak on the whole musical front, and I think that's a pity. I wanted to do um, The Way of the World, mm -hmm. uh, but when I started researching it, I, I found there was terribly little, because what, what I wanted to do was not just sort of review the plays. They're not just reviews of plays by any manner of means. I'm trying to put them in context, trying to have stories about them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and um, I found, in the case of The Way of the World, it was quite thin. I, I mean, Joe Orton said that, that Congreve was so upset at the poor reception of The Way of the World that he gave up writing, but actually that, that's rather a, a myth, uh, and uh, he didn't. He just was a very quiet man, and it just became quieter, you know, <laughs> and I would have liked to have done that, and a number of other plays. I mean, if I was doing some of Great Moments, I think there were quite a lot of things I'd put in. I, the play I, I would like to have seen you write about, and obviously, you know, this is all personal, is Sarah Kane's Blasted. Yeah, she which does. Was a, which was yeah. a pretty momentous first night. You were there. No, I wasn't. Oh, you weren't. I'm oh. actually extremely relieved not to be oh, there. Oh, you weren't there. Were you there? I was there, yeah. You were there. What yeah. did you say? Oh, don't. Oh, don't, yeah. no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> it's you, it's you, a shaming confession. Uh, oh, come on, we all have those. Um, I mean, Sarah Kane's Blasted, I'm, I'm sure you know about it, and it's pretty... Actually, the funny thing is, I don't think it's her best player. I think Crave no. and... Uh, is it uh, Psychosis 448 oh, or something yeah, like that? Yeah. A, a much better place. And I nearly put that in in a Polish production that I saw, which I thought was absolutely wonderful. But Blasted was one of those turning point plays, wasn't it? Was it? I, 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 I don't know. I've never been completely convinced by it, and I hope that's not because I'm desperately squeamish. I mean, I have seen it, and obviously I've read it, and I know it. And, mm -hmm. and I, I, I tell you, uh, Edward Bond, I don't know whether that's a name to conjure with or not, as saved is obviously in there, and I'm glad I didn't review that either, because God knows what I might have said about that. I mean, critics get things wrong all the time, and that's in the book again and again and again. Um, if I'd reviewed Blasted, I, whether I would have risen to it, I really don't know. I not many of us did, I have to say. I mean, most of us also then wrote later reviews when it was revived, you know, confessing our failure to get it the first time. But I, I don't want to dwell on that, but that was just one play that I thought, gosh, that was a... Yeah, and there are probably others, I mean, if you, if you think about them. Uh, Obviously, the book falls into sort of distinct sections to the extent that um, you weren't, I gather, at the first night of Hamlet, um, or indeed Tartuffe, yes, I was. or did the Oristar <laughs> on March the 5th, you know, uh, whatever. Um, I was there in spirit. Yeah, you were there in spirit. But then, so obviously you're writing about, partly about great moments of plays that you've researched, mm. and as we go into the book, deeper in the book, obviously then you're writing about great moments you personally witnessed. Yeah. Uh, and were there for. I just wondered, when it came to the writing, was it more fun to research the plays you hadn't seen the first night of, or was it more fun to write about the plays you actually were? Both, present? both, honestly, yeah. both. I, I mean, it, it was really interesting to research something like the government inspector. Poor old Goggle was in despair after the first night of that. People were walking around saying he should be sent to Siberia in chains. You know, and finding all that sort of thing was quite interesting. Uh, and the uh, Marriage of Figaro, the Beaumarchais play, yes. really interesting. And I really enjoyed that. And, and looking into La Ronde, for instance, I was able to find some uh, German reviews, uh, incredible anti-Semitic stuff in Vienna that, that um, 
you know, and that was very interesting. Schnitzel had a terrible, terrible time there. But my own experience, yes, it, you know, I hope it's not just narcissism, but I enjoyed bringing it up. For instance, Michael, and you were, Michael is the, the biographer of Harold Pinter, as I'm sure you know. Um, I was at the very first <laughs> world premiere yes. of The Homecoming. Indeed you were. Which is great. I mean, you know, and I still regard it as best play. Uh, Mark, as I think I say in the book, it was um, awful. A lot of people walked out. I mean, they, they didn't like it. It was in Cardiff. And um, I had to, at those days, one had to telephone one's reviews too. And I was on The Guardian myself in, in Manchester. And uh, I started my review and I thought it was so important. A big chance, 1965. You know, I was really young. And, um, you, you, you know, I, s I started off Harold Pinter, blah, blah, blah. And the, the copy takers who were mad and the sub editors who were drunk, uh, which I'm sure they're not now. Um, <laughs> turn that into how old Pinter? <laughs> it's completely bonkers. Because you have to remember in those days they, they turned uh, Shylock into Skylark. <laughs> and famously, Philip yeah. Wallace's review of the opera, Boris Godunov, was Doris Godunov. <laughs> <laughs> Boris's lesser known cousin. But it? The Guardian has changed. The Guardian's changed. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Any mistakes are now ours. Um, Looking back, though, at the, at the historical first nights you weren't at, which one would you most like to have been at? Gosh, that, that, that is... On, I think the Oresteia, because I'm mad about Greece. Ah, and, yes. uh, you, you, you know, and it would be so fascinating to know what the acting was like. I, I mean, uh, I think I quote in the book an, an actor who was an Aeschylean actor, Aeschylus actor, who looked at some of the later actors and said they acted like monkeys because they were all gestures and things like this, presumably. We're only guessing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, uh, but how, how, how unrealistic was it? How uh, stately was it? What was Iskalian acting like? And of course, the same thing is true uh, when you come to Burbage, you know? Yeah, what was it like? What was it like? Oh, God, wouldn't we like to be there, Michael? I would love to be there, yes. <laughs> Mind you, do you imagine as, as critics, sort of the first night of Hamlet, God, it's going on a bit, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I often think the first night of Lear, you know, here we are as critics and, oh, God, this is long and what's he on about? And, oh, dear, and why, why you know, who's this? Oh, that's very nasty, that Gloucester bit. <laughs> you, you know, and we rush out and, you know what? Reviewing is like these days. We'd rush out and try and review it in about twenty minutes flat. Yes, we'd have got say, it wrong. We'd say self-indulgent. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, that's the Tom Stoppard rule. Any play that ends after ten o'clock is automatically self-indulgent. <laughs> yes. um, but you also write, and this is very beguiling in the book. You write about famous flops. I mean, you've got a fav favourite famous flop in your book. Is there one or two that sort of thread well, their way through the book? I, I think when musicals go really wrong, they go more <laughs> wrong than anything else. Uh, there's a sort of algebra, which I think I mentioned in the book, you know, they, they see it's going wrong, so they spend and spend and mend and mend, and the more they spend and mend, the worse everything gets. Uh, I saw a musical on Broadway, which I reviewed, I think again I mentioned this, which had something like 16 producers and eight uh, <laughs> composers, and it was called Marilyn, and all I can remember about it was poor old Marilyn and bubble bath, while uh, a chorus of plumbers in purple danced around her. I, I don't think that was the worst thing I saw. The Fields of Ambrosia, we remember very that, well. Actually, yes. Well done, Michael. You, <laughs> we, uh, I, I won't go into it again, it's here, but Twang is the one I chose. Yes. Because I well, did see that when I was in Manchester. Tell people yeah. about Twang who may not know what it was. Twang, Lionel Bart's musical. It, it, again, it says something about the theatre. He'd done Oliver. Oh, what a success Lionel Bart was. Um, Joan Littlewood, phew. 
So they put the two together, uh, and they hate each other, and everything goes wrong. Uh, Joan Littlewood does nothing but Viet Cong exercises. It's a musical about Robin Hood, incidentally. <laughs> does nothing but Viet Cong exercises, and no one knows anything. Um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, Lionel Bart is dropping the LSD like anything. Uh, and uh, the rumours around Manchester get more and more lurid. And, and uh, you know, they're adding things and cutting things. And there's this moment, forgive me for a slightly rude word, when <laughs> Ronnie Corbett, I think it's in the book, Rob, Robin Corbett, uh, Ronnie Corbett's play, playing Will Scarlet, goes out for a pee. And when he comes back, he finds several of his lines have been cut. <laughs> and, and he says, for God's sake, don't let me go out for a shit or they'll cut my whole part. <laughs> 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 That's twang. But I remember it very well because I will always respect Barbara Windsor, always in these shows. And it was completely incomprehensible on stage. Um, uh, and there's always a line. And there's Barbara playing a, a sort of main Marian figure called Delfina or something, God knows what. And there's always this line, I don't know what's going on here. And there it was, this huge <laughs> Manchester Theatre, the Palace. Yeah. Nor do we. <laughs> it's uh, inevitable. So that's probably the worst. What I love about the book, one of the main things I love about the book, is it's a very confessional book. I mean, you say, you touched on this a moment ago, that um, you were wrong about Rattigan, because at one point, mm, when you were the New Statesman, you dismiss him rather swiftly. But now, looking back, obviously, you're profound, uh, profoundly admired Deep Blue Sea. At the same time, you sometimes cling, rightly, to your original convictions. For example, that Peter Brook's dream, say. yes, you think, <laughs> was very overrated and overpraised by, by the critics. I mean, I can see why you've changed your mind about Rattigan. Uh, why are you so adamant about the, the Peter Brook dream? Uh, well, it's, it's one of his most famous productions, the Peter Brook dream. Uh, and I'm, I'm clinging to a, <laughs> a stick in the water trying not to drown over this one, probably. But I remember going up to it, and I did something that I think critics should never do, actually. Um, I... I, I do quite a lot of preparing when I see things, and I'd read Jan Cott's Shakespeare, Our Contemporary, and I knew he was a friend of Brooke's, and I knew that Brooke had said he was influenced by him, and I went up there thinking this is going to be a, a really, you, you know, Cott sort of idea of, of, and it's a wonderful essay, actually, of, of um, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, was it was going to be quite hard, quite tough, quite sexy, uh, and all that, and it wasn't. It was air. It wasn't earth and it wasn't really water, and it was, certainly wasn't fire very much. And I found myself coming home, and uh, actually I, I drove home with someone called Helen Dawson, who later, later married um, John Osborne, and um, back to London from Stratford. And we didn't speak, and I thought, well, she probably hated it too. And then she wrote this amazing <laughs> rave. Uh, and then um, Bernard Levin, who I didn't know at that time, uh, said, everyone loves uh, it. Uh, Midsummer's Dreaming, and there's only one fool in London, a notorious fool. <laughs> I got rather worried about this and, and wrote him a letter saying, excuse me, n n no suing or anything, but am I the notorious fool? And then he said something almost worse. He said, I didn't know you'd written about it. Anyway, you cling mm. to your point of view, which is fair enough. Um, mm. Oscar Wilde said, I mean, changing the subject slightly, Oscar Wilde once said, criticism is the only pure form of autobiography. And one of the things that struck me about this book was it is, in a way, the disguised Benedict Nightingale autobiography, in that your own, I think your own 
convictions uh, come out. Not only convictions, what you look for in theatre emerges. And one thing that struck me, you may disagree with this, that um, works that appeal to you are those that offer some residual hope. Hope, oh, yes. And I mean, that hope can mm. take lots of different forms. I mean, you rightly point out that even Edward Bond's Saved ends on a note of residual optimism. Well, what he calls optimism. Well, yeah, but it is, it is optimism. <laughs> but you see, Len, at the end of that play, yeah. mending that mm. chair, yeah. does argue yes, that yeah. some redemption is possible. Mm. And I mean, you are all, one of the few critics who actually endorsed Les Miserables at the first viewing. And one of the reasons you give for its popularity is that it is, it is a generous work in its spirit. Um, I mean, do you recognise this? Well, actually, I hadn't thought that. I mean, it's very nice of you. I, I, I thought I was going for the tough-minded things, rather, or the funny things, yes. or just things I enjoyed. But, well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, if you look at, well, good, I mentioned, there's, I'm afraid there's not much hope there, but I would like to think that. I mean, sometimes there's a sort of spirit in things, a soul in things. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether that's hope, but it, but it is something I care about. And actually, I do find it in Les Miserables. I mean, the first night of Les Miserables... Um, was very odd, really, because it was quite clear that the audience was loving it. Uh, I think I say in the book, I, I turned, looked at the woman to my right, and if you know the moment in Close Encounters of the First Kind where Truffaut and others are seeing an alien spaceship, they're going, oh, like this, and they're just amazed. And there's this woman I never met, and she was going, oh, like this, and I thought, you know, this audience is loving it. And that was what the actors felt, too. They were absolutely stunned when they got um, awful reviews and Cameron McIntosh burst into tears. The sort of thing perhaps she does rather often, I don't know, I shouldn't say that. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so they were very surprised, but, but I stopped. I think it was a very good thing, and I will attack myself slightly here, but I was too lazy to read, it's very long, mm -hmm. Les Miserables. And all the, all the critics who read Les Miserables said this great mountain has been reduced to a molehill. Except, interestingly, for John, for John Peter in the Sunday Times, who took the opposite view and said this absolutely ridiculous, overrated novel has been turned into quite a good musical. So, <laughs> so I didn't know. But I and Michael Coveney and Sheridan Morley, and one of the, especially the Americans, they, they loved it. Another thing, I, I keep going about the many things I love about this book. Another one is that it's not simply about plays, it's about actors too, isn't it? Oh, yes. And I was very heartened to see you pick out one of my own personal favourite performers, and that's Eileen Atkins. Hooray, and a, yeah. a great performance she gave in here, in this theatre, The Night of the Iguana. I mean, why, why her? Why that performance? Well, I, I, I mean, I say that there's this, every now and then, very, very rarely, there's a sort of magic in the theatre. I know this is something you can't quantify or quite or really even describe, but there's a moment, I don't know if you know My, Night of the Iguana, the Tennessee Williams play, but, but there's a moment where she describes a, what seems to us a furtive encounter in a boat of Hong Kong, which she describes as a love encounter. It's quite a long speech. And there was Eileen up there saying this, saying it's not the right word, acting it, giving it. And that audience was absolutely... This could only happen in the theatre. You go to Les Miserables in the cinema, you can't have that, can you? Because it, there it is over there. But there she was, and she embraced us and told us this. And, and there was something magic about it. I mean, genuinely magic about it. And it's something that can occasionally happen in the theatre. And I think she is a great actress. Uh, I, I, I quote a, another rather ordinary play, I can't even remember what it is, in which she 
transform the very ordinary part into something. She, she's got a bite to her that, that I like, uh, as well as that uh, magic quality, I think. Yeah, I absolutely mm. agree. Um, I mean, obviously, the, you call the book a de facto theatrical history, and obviously it stems, could not be written without your long experience as a working drama critic. And I just wonder if we can talk about that for a moment. Mm. Um, I mean, do you still have faith in the power of the critic. And I ask the question because it's one that mm. comes up, I find time and time and time again these days, about the necessity for critics in the age of the blogosphere and Twitter and everything else, when everyone can publish their opinions. And people say to me all the time, do we still need people like you, people like us? Well, uh, do we? Well, if I could talk about you, for well, instance. No, 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 I mean, no. with your... I'm talking generally. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, generally. But, but you, you know, knowledge counts for something, experience counts for something, and accountability counts for something. What worries me about a lot of these blogs is, you, you know, who's behind them? I mean, you write for The Guardian, and, and that gives you, I think, a degree of authority, more than a degree of authority. And, and you know a hell of a lot about the theatre. And, uh, you, you, you know, that shouldn't go. And I think people in the theatre feel that very strongly. They, they want to see their things properly, seriously, professionally and informedly assessed. And they do. And I hope that's true of readers too. I mean, obviously, there's all, we can go on about this for ages. We're all awfully hacked off about the fact that reviews are shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. Um, but... Uh, I, I, I still think they matter. And as newspapers begin to disappear, maybe they'll matter less. We'll just shrink into nothing. I don't know. Not me, because I've, I've retired now. But they'll shrink into nothing. Uh, and I think uh, another point to do with that is I think it's a very good thing that there are so many critics in London, uh, of uh, many of them, uh, Michael probably m much more than most, of, of, of approximately similar um, authority. Um, uh, if you go to New York, uh, and I've worked in New York on the New York Times, the New York Times is the paper and can make or break. And I think that's desperately unhealthy for the theatre. Uh, so more critics, the better. More critics that are accountable and authoritative, the better, if it happens. But newspapers are evaporating, and God knows where we'll be. I wouldn't recommend any... Would you recommend anyone to go into theatre criticism, print criticism? Well, I, well, I, I would say criticism, but I mean, I, I, I would say the same thing. You know, uh, there's a transition, obviously, from print towards uh, digital criticism. And, you know, you have now to be skilled at expressing yourself... Uh, in other forms, you know. In you Twitter, have, yeah. yeah. Well, or, right. or, but you could also write for websites or create your own website or whatever. But I just want to come back to this point about, you know, mm. why, why critics. One of my stock arguments, and it may be, um, you know, this is trying to vindicate our job, is that anyone can have an opinion. I mean, opinions are, you know, rightly, everyone has an opinion about everything they see. But the difficulty is expressing the opinion. And what I'm trying to say is I read critics and always have dead critics and live critics for their style. And it seems to me, it's not, right or, it's not whether they're right or wrong, whether their opinion coincides with mine. No it's whether they thing, write with really, is wit mm. and uh, lightness and erudition. And again, you know, there are moments in your book when I might disagree with you, but I enjoyed every essay, every part of your book, because the Thank essays you. are so yeah. damn well written. I mean, isn't that the justification in the end? Well, it's very good to say so. I, uh, well, I'm, 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 I'm sure it helps. I mean, what you might call the new Twitter school of, of criticism when you're trying to do long days 
journey in 40 letters or something. Yeah, there's not much you can do with style. I think it is getting more difficult. I mean, it's getting short. When I joined the Times, and I'm very grateful for the Times, and I'm not just saying this. I'm very grateful for the Times. They, they would give me a huge amount of freedom and help and so on. Um, but when I joined a, 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 a review of something reasonably serious, like, uh, well, anything really, would be 700 words. Mm -hmm. That's half the length it would be on the New York Times, but then in the New York Theatre, there's so little to review. You know, it didn't matter very much, perhaps. But uh, now it's 400 words. And if you're lucky, I don't know what you get, Michael. 450 on average, Four, yes. Yeah, you know, and it's very difficult to sort of condense things in, in what you describe as a stylish way. I think you do, and I, th I think several of our colleagues do it. I think some very, very good writers. The late Alan Coran said that, and this is quite a while ago, admittedly, said he thought the best writing was theatre criticism. Did Hooray. He? he did, actually. Oh, that's very nice. Good. Well, he's a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> who, were, who were the critics who influenced you? Well, Tynan, I suppose. I, I, I think Tynan's a rather mixed influence, actually, because his style is so desperately Mandarin, and I, I think it perhaps wouldn't work now. That, that, that if, if you try to imitate him, I think he look rather silly. And, and also, Tynan was, I think, sometimes quite wrong. Uh, I mean, he famously uh, rubbished the birthday party and other yes. things. That's been all. So did most people, actually. Yes, not Harold Hobson, who, not I, Harold Hobson. who I'd never rated hugely as a critic. I thought he was too weird and whimsical and all over the place. But, but um, he wrote a brilliant, brilliant with it. He wrote a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant review of the birthday yes. party. Absolutely extraordinary. It's, I mean, there are such things. I mean, Penelope Gilead reviewing Saved is a remarkable review. Because the theme that comes through, I hope, all the time in this book is that good plays very, very often have hellish births and things go wrong a lot. Yeah. It's almost a sign, isn't it, of a breakthrough play that it will be yeah. misunderstood on its first outing. Yeah, and yeah. Only be understood the second or third time round, actually. And certainly in post-1956, that's true, isn't it? If you look at the catalogue of critical disasters. You mean like Saved? Or well, like uh, Saved, like Sergeant Musgrave's Dance, like The Birthday Party, like Blasted. You know, when a play comes along that changes the rules, mm. critics, on the whole, on the whole, don't get it. Oh, that's sad, isn't it? I, and it's absolutely true. Though there's often one critic, or more than there's, one critic, yes, who does. Right. Hobson, Gilead, and, and there have been others. Tynan, obviously, would look back in anger. Um, and Tynan and Hobson would look back and in anger. And you would leave Miserable. Yes. <laughs> Me would leave Miserable. <laughs> oh, and I'm going to mention another one which we won't like. Go on. Oh, go on. I go can't. on, no, go on. Betrayal. Oh, I thought you'd mention that, yes. <laughs> It's been a running joke for the last 30 years that Benedict first time round understood perceptively and wrote well about Harold Pinter's betrayal. <laughs> I came along and said, I remember seeing it, seeing it in the Littleton quite vividly and saying, you know, this was a betrayal of Harold Pinter's talent, writing about this little exhausted oh, and minuscule subject of middle-class adultery, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I now see betrayal, and obviously I think it's a masterpiece. So I was... I'm boasting now, it's not good. No, no it's perfectly, perfectly <laughs> legitimate. Though Antonio Fraser did once mm. say to me, Michael said, every time you review Betrayal, you didn't have to keep on about the fact you misunderstood it the first time around. <laughs> so I, but you, no, you got it, I didn't, which is, which is, which is history. <laughs> um, I want to thank Benedict profusely for being, as always, sharp, funny, and witty, and clever. And thank oh, you, Michael, Benedict, thank you. for doing the chat. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.